Hello and welcome to Agents of Nonprofit. My name is Alexander Lapa, and I'm here to speak with everyday superheroes helping nonprofits using technology. Joining me today is Kismet Salam to talk about RFP processes. Kismet, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me to do this. Uh, I was excited in preparing for this and uh, looking forward to a great discussion. Yeah, and for uh, full disclosure, Kismet and I met each other through an RFP process which is why we, we chose this as a topic. I ended up not being the chosen vendor for the particular project, but I loved the whole entire process. I loved working with you. So I wanted to have you on the show to talk about the whole experience. Not, of course, about that particular project, but the whole RFP process in huh? general. Well, thank you for that. It's a, a very humbling and I appreciate your feedback and kind words. So before we get into the actual RFP stuff, I'm curious to know, what is your superhero origin story? That is to say, how <laughs> did you get started working with nonprofits? Uh, great question. So like many people in this business and the not-for-profit business, I, I fell into it, not necessarily on purpose, but there was a period uh, back in 2008 where I was looking for a career change and I saw a job posting that was very much aligned with all of my skills and translatably. And uh, so uh, I was fortunate enough to, to uh, land that position. Um, it was a boutique association management firm in the Chicago area. And I was very blessed to have a wonderful boss who allowed me to just be independent and flourish and explore. And I had exposure to a number of clients and different client cultures and different industries, different um, disciplines. And I gained a lot of experience in various aspects of association management. I did focus mostly on um, education. So I headed up the education department and as the company grew and eventually it was actually uh, merged with another larger company, um, I continued to do that. And because of that, I was in, involved in RFP processes for various clients um, in the education space, technology platforms, other types of uh, services and credentialing, accreditation, et cetera. So that's kind of how it all started. Awesome. And there are many aspects of the RFP process we could look upon, but the lens that, that I wanted to choose for today was from the nonprofit perspective. So, uh, you know, as a nonprofit is considering doing an RFP all the way through to the very end, as opposed to the, the vendor side, mm -hmm. uh, we might touch upon a bit about that, but it's mostly I wanted to focus on the nonprofit side. So given that, and when should a nonprofit even consider an RFP process? Like what is the, the criteria or the mechanism where a nonprofit says, you know what, we really need help and an RFP process is the right choice versus, let's say, going with a particular single vendor and saying, here is our, our tool, our, our vendor of choice. Like, why would you have one over the other? Oh, okay. So, I mean, that's a, I think that's a really important foundational question, actually. Um, but I think the answer uh, can vary depending on many different factors. But if I just kind of speak generally, first of all, I think, uh, if you're talking about issuing an RFP, that likely means that um, you a, don't have the internal resources to perform something. So where technology is concerned, that's usually the case. Um, if it's service level uh, work, such as let's say conducting a feasibility study, for example, and you don't have internal expertise to do something like that, of course, that would call for, for looking for a vendor to do it. But um, issuing an RFP, I think is the, is my preferred approach rather than asking a single vendor for help. And I think some of the reasons are pretty self-evident, but uh, it all comes down to being able to say that you did the, um, the most extensive due diligence you possibly could have done, looking at capabilities of different vendors, vetting their references, 
and really getting sufficient buy-in from all of your stakeholders um, on, on the project, which could be volunteer leaders, uh, committees, of course, board members, um, and other stakeholders to make sure that at the end of the day, if things go off the rails for any reason, that there will be a you know minimum to no finger pointing because everyone had buy-in into the decision, and then everyone can work together for you know finding solutions and bringing the project to a successful conclusion. Whereas, of course, the opposite is if you kind of had a, a known vendor, a single vendor, or was recommended by a board member, which often happens, or another volunteer or a staff member. And you go with that without really doing that due diligence, you can imagine the ramifications of doing something like that from an optics perspective, favoritism, nepotism, et cetera. And if something does go wrong, it's really easy to say, well, it was so-and-so's recommendation. So for those reasons, I'd say go, go the distance and do an RFP process and do the due diligence and you'll have, I think, a, a much better outcome. And would you say that applies pretty much across the board? I mean, obviously, if you have internal resources to do something, that, that doesn't count. But if you are looking outside, would you say virtually every single time an RFP process should be undertaken? Or there are certain conditions where it makes sense just to go through a referral or someone who's already known uh, for a particular single vendor? Yeah, I think once you get to a point where, let's say, you have a duplication where another client in a very short period of time is looking for the exact same thing and you know the criteria, you can definitely use prior information that was gathered or shortlist certain vendors um, based on your previous RFP process. And I, I had the opportunity to do that once or twice. And of course, with full disclosure, uh, you know, there may be another organization that's in your space, right? And they, you have a lot of overlap and you may go to them and ask them, you know, we, we definitely want to look at, you know, some other vendors that we may find, but, you know, have you worked with any that you really feel comfortable with and that you feel like we should put on our list kind of a thing. But I think it's always should be, what what is the high stakes nature of the project, the work that needs to be done, whether you have internal resources that can work alongside with a consultant if they can't fully take on the project themselves due to other work. I mean, there's all these different factors, but some some things are so highly specialized, right? Like a website redevelopment or a Salesforce upgrade or, or initial implementation or a certification management platform where, you know, you do need to hire expertise and, and sometimes more than one. I just finished a project where we Hired, we, we did an RFP for a certification management platform that had an embedded association management system within, in other words, a CRM. And we also did one for a, a data migration specialist. So in those kinds of cases, that's expertise that you, you'd want to bring in to, to make sure your project is successful and not, not rely on internal resources. You touched upon interesting element is pre-selecting certain vendors. So I know that there's generally two kinds of RFP processes. I believe there's two kinds of RFP processes. The first one where it's a public RFP where anyone can apply, they can submit responses and so forth, versus more of a closed one where you pre-select in advance a number of vendors that you want to respond. Whether they respond or not, of course, is uh, after that. But you've already shortlisted all possibilities to, let's say, a handful, submit a RFP request to them and hopefully get an answer back versus we don't have any shortlist. We're going to just broadcast this to the world and start from there and, and, and hopefully get some good responses. Is there mm -hmm. any 
any benefit to one to the other? Is there certain conditions where you would do one over the other? You kind of alluded upon that by saying, you know, if you already have a reference from somewhere else, maybe that could be an indicator of a shortlist version. But are there any other factors that would be involved in in going one of those two uh, routes? Yeah, I think that you know it's, it's a continuum, right, of pre total pre selection uh, to putting it out there in the public um, for all to see. But uh, doing either one of those um, again depends on I think the circumstances and the reality on the ground. There may be. Uh, some known vendors based on experience and referrals where, you know, you they've been vetted, their references have already been checked. And, and it's like, okay, well, we, we, this is reasonable. We've got three or four vendors that we can take a look at and make a decision based on some really solid evidence, right? Some really solid um, data. The other end of it, which is develop the RFP and put it out to the entire universe. I think that in some circumstances, there may be laws that dictate that you do that, okay? And that could very much be related to like government agencies and that sort of thing. But I kind of take a middle ground approach, which is that I do look for recommendations. I also uh, belong to some consulting networks. And so what I do is I put out a feeler and I say, a client of mine is going to be distributing an RFP for you know XYZ services or a vendor or whatever. And if interested, please contact me directly. So then I gather those responses in addition to any of the other recommendations. And sometimes those recommendations come from other organizations, colleagues, board members, et cetera. And I, I put them all together in a distribution list. And then I send out the RFP to that distribution list specifically. I think, Alex, you and I found each other because one of my uh, contacts, when I sent it out to a consulting network, recommended you because they didn't necessarily do the work, but they knew about you. So that, and that actually happens quite a bit. It's like, oh, you know what? This isn't really in our wheelhouse or we don't have the capacity, but I have a great recommendation for you and let me connect you. And I'm like, absolutely. So I I do this because I I take this approach because partly because I think I want to protect my client from getting too much attention you know, sometimes when you're when you put an RFP, it's because there's a gap in certain available resources internally. You may be trying to do a rebuild of, of uh, certain aspects of the organization, and so I, I feel like making it too public sometimes may may raise uh, a lot more attention and scrutiny than I think is necessary. So I really look at the you know the need to sometimes put a little bit of a wall of protection around my client and control the communication and the um, the attention so that we can focus on the business at hand and not necessarily a bunch of inquiries for from people who are curious and that sort of thing. I'm not saying that I am, you know, uh, militantly protective, but I, but I try to keep their privacy in mind. Is there ever a situation where you have too many responses, where there's just, you know, a certain paradox of choice where you were maybe anticipating a handful, but you're getting multiple handfuls of responses. Is that, has that ever happened? And if it does, any recommendations on how to deal with it? Because obviously there's there's just so much to go through, so much data to go through, and you might want to filter some of those uh, responses down or applications, let's say, to a smaller list so it's more digestible and more manageable. Yeah, it's interesting. I could say in recent experience that well, first, I think more than recent experience, but overall, I think that sometimes the services that we're looking for are uh, highly specialized. 
and that there, in some cases, there may only be a few vendors out there that actually do whatever it is that we need. So that kind of, uh, you know, process of elimination happens naturally. It, because we're not putting it out, quote unquote, to the public, uh, I think that also helps to limit the responses somewhat. One of the things that in our process is that, as, as I said, when we ask for interested parties to respond and, and with their intent to bid, we'll often get a lot more intent emails than, than actually materializes in proposals at the end of the process. Sometimes midway, I'll be notified by some of the vendors to say, yeah, we really had the best of intentions to respond, but other circumstances have intervened or priorities changed, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, we don't get them. So I think it's good to cast a wide enough net to be able to get a good selection of vendors to choose from. But yeah, indeed. I mean, if there were dozens and dozens and then all of the process that I go through to vet those proposals, which we can talk about a little bit from a high level, would really, really be very time consuming. And that I don't necessarily think it would produce significantly different results in the end. Uh, you want to jump into that for sure. I'm also curious to know before we get to that part in terms of the flow of the conversation is how would RFPs normally be communicated? Like, is it something you post on your website and then cross your fingers? Is it in your case, you an agency might hire you to help them use your network, uh, maximize their, their number of responses or some combination or another option? You know, how would a, what is the best way? And of course, the best being in quotes uh, that a nonprofit should do, could do to make sure that they get qualified responses? Yeah, I think, you know, my, as I said, my process is is really sort of a little bit more high touch. I cannot recall where we've ever posted an RFP on a website, but speaking for not-for-profits in general, there are, of course, you know, the, the various not-for-profit organizations that serve not-for-profits, AASAE comes to mind, they they do have I think a space for RFPs, but that generally um, I, I think it does it does delve into vendors etc. I think I've seen you know different websites in the certification credentialing space that have RFPs available. More and more of these RFP portals are popping up all over the place. I've recently been been introduced to a couple of them, but they are open to everyone. So I think to the extent that it it really depends on how public you want to be or your client wants to be and how much bandwidth you have to manage um, a cascade of responses should they come before you make the decision on where to post. But I think, sure, website, LinkedIn, uh, listservs, proposal websites, RFP websites, all of that is fair game in my opinion. It just really matters in terms of how you want to manage your process. Makes sense. And then what would be a couple of steps that the nonprofit should undertake before sending out an RFP. Like obviously there has to be an agreement mm-hmm. that we're going to do an RFP, but there has to be more involved than just that. You know, what would be the, the high level steps that a nonprofit normally does uh, and right before sending off that RFP? Um, I think I touched a little bit earlier just on, you know, the internal discussions and the and the buy-in from stakeholders, but I think internal discovery is key really bringing together all the people that might have a a role in the project, which could be everything from, you know, an executive director, obviously, to the finance person. If it's a technology project, bringing in the anyone who is working in IT and just any any other stakeholders that might have some part or be affected by the process and do an assessment of 
both financial resources and staff resources to not only just manage the RFP process, but to actually implement the project in the first place. Because if if you don't have the foundation and the infrastructure just to manage the project and have a, a person who can be dedicated as a project manager internally, then you should really be thinking, is this the right time to do this? Or do we need to hire up first, staff up first, or bring in not just a vendor, but a but a contractor to manage the project, you know, a project manager, so to speak, in order to be able to fully staff and manage that process. So once you have those ducks in a row, so to speak, then you've got buy-in from stakeholders on the structure of the RFP, what the RFP, RFP is asking for, the timeline, if there are going to be external volunteers that need to be part of that process. It's a really good idea to put together a working group or a task force, uh, whatever nomenclature you might use to be on the hook for participating in uh, proposal reviews, uh, proposal walkthrough interviews, so to speak, formal interviews, and being part of those decisions. So you have that group and they've been oriented and you have some guidelines established. They're aware of the timeline. They've indicated they have the availability around key milestone dates to participate, then you'll be set up for success. I think skipping any of those steps will reveal itself to be to have been detrimental along the way. Yeah, I think allocating people to the the task, not just the RFP process itself, but afterward is, is key mm-hmm. uh, here because you know if you don't have dedicated people or semi-dedicated people, and there's always a balance between you know the RFP process and day-to-day operations, but not having people who are more or less focused on this endeavor. Uh, could definitely extend things and, and, and things could take you know, significantly longer without these people. For sure. Yeah. I noticed you didn't mention budget. So mm. where does that come into play? Well, I think I said financial resources. So, you know, and I was, I was thinking about that before we, you know, as I was planning for this. And one of the things that I was going to mention is that at the outside of some RFP processes, the client will have sort of a, a line item in their budget with some projected expenses for vendor costs, staff costs, and then of course implementation, which usually might you know end up being in a different budget cycle. But um, if there's an established budget, it makes it easy. You put it in the RFP, and vendors will sort of develop their proposals accordingly. Um, I've been in several situations though where a, bar, a budget was not targeted. Um, we might have had some ballpark numbers um, through our discussions, but we really kind of wait to see what comes in with the proposals. And if let's say you get five proposals and four of those proposals are within a, a range of five to ten thousand dollars, you know, along the same lines. But then you get a proposal that is significantly higher than the others that you know raises some some questions, potentially some red flags, too. But that those those numbers that are close together helps us to say, hey, we were pretty on target with our projections and that, you know, that should shape our budget. Or if they're significantly higher than uh, all of them come in higher than what we were projecting, we would definitely have to revisit the whole I, the projections and what ends up getting put into the budget to accommodate that particular project. There are normally three levers that a client can use. They can, well, different levers based on uh, what you're trying to achieve. Their scope, timeline, and budget. Mm-hmm. And typically what I hear is that 
usually the client is only able to choose one of those three as immutable. That means they cannot change. They determine what the scope has to be, but the provider will then determine the timeline and the budget. Or let's say the client chooses the budget and therefore as immutable, it cannot be changed. This is all we have. And therefore the scope and the timeline can shift accordingly. Is this a factor in the RFP process or does that happen afterward during more of the, the project phase? Interesting. You're giving me things to think about. We we typically do project a timeline for kickoff and project completion, strictly projections at the very outset, because so many factors can change that. But we certainly do ask the vendors to project to us in a in their proposals a an estimated timeline for implementation that includes the different phases of the project. Because when we start out, you know, we don't know what we don't know. So it helps when they kind of put that overlay on top of what we've said, and then we can go, oh, okay, this, this looks reasonable. We can adjust our timeline accordingly, or we may need to do some more talking because of a sense of urgency, let's say. If, you've, you know, if you need to have a website relaunched in conjunction with a major milestone anniversary of your organization, right? You may have to scale things to a, to a faster pace with the vendor. Um, I don't necessarily buy into the idea that certain things are unchangeable if they're or or not interchangeable i think that in not for profit organizations they may have a set budget but in certain circumstances a case could be made for additional request of funds to support financially support a particular important project strategic project um, by going to the board and making that case and asking for that approval. So, I, and I've seen that happen many times. I think that organizations could probably overestimate their budgets if, if, if that's the case and come in under budget, which, which always looks good. And, and in terms of, so I've covered timeline, I've covered budget. What was the other one? It was scope. Scope. I think scope and timeline are very much related and in some cases, when we develop an RFP, like I said, we don't know, we don't know. I'm involved in one right now uh, for not technology services, but uh, more in the sort of uh, branding PR space. And we're getting a lot of really thoughtful questions about what's included in the budget. You know, does, does it include, you know, the following elements or does it actually include the implementation of the PR plan? And so these these questions have helped us to shape our thinking and say, well, we need to, A, think about the budget in terms of what happens in this fiscal year versus the next. But also I've said to the vendors, listen, why don't you develop your proposal and you decide within, uh, I think I gave them a, a budget range. You decide what is possible from this RFP within that range and then explain to us what you would consider to be an additional scope or additional costs that would be related. And, and that will really help us to budget for the future and to really um, narrow down the scope of the project. So in a way, these RFP processes really become instructive to the client, to me and, and the clients that I work with, and, and helps you think of things that you didn't think of or rethink the things you thought you knew and to develop more accurate budgets based on true information, you know, updated information that you didn't have before you started the process. I like that you mentioned that you you sometimes help or guide even the vendors with their responses. Because when I first heard about RFP processes many years ago, I figured it's more like a poker match where you don't want to show the cards that you have. 
And as you know, your cards get revealed, then you show your cards. But it's very mm-hmm. much a hanging on to information for as long as possible, just to see what you can get as responses. Versus yeah. you've touched upon a, a principle where it's more of a partnership and a guiding type of things where you're you're not holding your cards. You're you're showing more than you could in order to be able to either create relationships, partnerships. And I'm curious to know, like, is that something that's typical you find? Or do you recommend having more of a, let's see what they say before we reveal our cards type of approach? Yeah, thank you for asking me that. Because I think this is so key in the way I, I see this from a professional and ethical standpoint. First of all, I believe in as much transparency as possible without compromising you know, the, the client or, or privacy or things like that. I really try to have as much of a level playing field as possible. You know, no special consideration. If I, if I know a vendor that, that will not factor into their success, I think that the more information you can provide to the vendors helps them to develop well-targeted proposals or self-select to move out of the process because they realize that they don't have certain expertise or the bandwidth or whatever. And yeah, developing those relationships because, you know, as I do this the uh, more and more, then I have known vendors who've been vetted, who whose references have potentially been checked, who have had successful projects where I can confidently then say to my future clients, you know, here, here are these vendors. I'm happy to put them in the RFP process. You know, here's our experience with them. But because I do the, uh, the guiding, but I, I try not to influence the final decision, whether or not they go with those vendors is completely independent of, of, you know, m- me pushing or trying to uh, affect the outcome. And I do, you know, I do really value the idea that how you treat people in any circumstance uh, is how you should want to be treated. And I look at, you know, if I was in a situation where the shoe was on the other foot and I was in an RFP process, transparency would be super important and helpful. And, uh, you know, be, getting some additional guidance. We, uh, An example is we had uh, with this branding RFP that we did, we, have, we always put out a uh, opportunity you know deadline for questions to be submitted for proposals and then we try to respond to them and oh we get the most amazing questions again that teach us things and we really try to respond within a specified period of time well we had some requests for an actual phone call some of the vendors wanted to have phone calls with us and I thought well again level playing field that's the baseline so we held a zoom call for an hour and a half brought in various people involved in the project who could answer the questions sufficiently and invited all the vendors who are who have submitted an, an intent to submit a proposal. And it was a wonderful session. And we got a lot of great questions. And we were able to provide a tremendous amount of additional context that will help them to develop these proposals. Because in this case, it's a pretty high stakes project. There will be a lot of public exposure on it and that sort of thing. So we 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 go that extra mile. I'm not saying that what I do is is that nobody else does it or anything like that. It's just I'm I'm just talking about my experience. But we all know how it is when you, you know, submit something and you have no word on anything and you have no idea. It's kind of like, you know, a job interview. You know, you're waiting to hear from the HR person or whatever to see if you have another interview. And I think informing people of this is how the process is going to go. And you know, you'll hear from us within X period of days or weeks and that sort of thing just helps them to gauge uh, their involvement and, and to keep them engaged. 
building those relationships, I totally agree. And, and it's, you know, we are living proof of this in that yeah. even though I wasn't chosen for the uh, particular project, we had a, we built a, enough of a relationship that, you know, who knows what going forward, but the idea is that uh, I felt close enough to you to be able to ask you to come on the show. So thank you for that, for keeping that relationship alive and, and being that transparent and, and trying to help make sure that the client does have the best possible outcome. Yeah. Well, thank you back for all of that. I'm very happy that it worked out that way. Likewise. So we've kind of touched upon this and and maybe we didn't really get too much into it, but I'm curious to know just the high level steps in terms of an RFP process. We've already kind of jumped into the the weeds of the, you know, here's what you need to do. But if you had to segment the RFP process into just a couple of high level stages, how would you define it? Obviously there's a expression of we need to have help it has to be outside that would be maybe phase one phase two would be building the proposal itself mm-hmm. um not without getting to the details of what needs to be in the proposal and then step three would be submitting the proposal publishing it in some way step four would be waiting for answers like if you can just continue that stage or add to those stages a little yeah. bit or that'd be great yeah absolutely so once the deadline comes uh and pro- proposals come in i first take the time and sometimes it takes a a good amount of hours, but I sit down with all the proposals. I create a grid. Um, I always joke around and tell people, if you want me to really look at something and understand something, put it in a grid for me and we'll be golden. So I kind of do the same thing for myself. I create a grid with all the different um, proposal criteria. And hopefully if the vendors that submitted them uh, actually follow the the requested format that makes it easier, but sometimes you have to do a little bit dig- digging or, or construing. Um, and then I take that grid and try to make it as much of an apples to apples comparison as I can. And then I make that, that analysis, you know, includes notes and, you know, lists of clients and cost and all, like I said, all the different uh, criteria of the proposal, it can end up being a pretty, uh, pretty wide grid, but then I take that in the proposals and I put them on a share drive and I share that link with my clients and we set a deadline for them to review the proposals and the summary that I've provided, the analysis. And then we meet and we uh, we go back and forth and discuss the different proposals. And in some cases, we do narrow it down. There may be, you know, we can talk about the criteria of narrowing things down uh, momentarily, but we and, or we may not. We may say, you know what, we've got four great vendors in the mix here, and let's go ahead and do a proposal walkthrough with all of them. And I do call it a proposal walkthrough, not an interview, not a presentation. We don't want a canned presentation about their company and all that. We want to just basically say, you know, we've read your proposal, we have some questions about it, uh, and we'd like to schedule that with you. And we do that and um, work through, of course, the logistics and everything of everyone's schedules. And once that's done, then the staff or the, the team meets again, and we discuss those interviews. I provide a rubric to them um, for like a scoring rubric and a place for comments for them to kind of keep track of everything. Because once you do a couple of these, things start to get confused. You know, you can forget things. And then we meet um, to discuss their uh, their feedback. I will take those rubrics and and try to see if we can uh, pull out any numbers to to show you know not necessarily a voting but maybe a ranking. And then we have those discussions, and typically that will result in a further narrowing down of vendors. And then uh, we once those are narrowed down, then we'll have those formal presentations, and we'll ask the vendors to bring their the team onto that interview that will be working with us as a client should they be selected as a vendor. And 
I can't tell you like the, doing this process of not having a high stakes interview first and really walking through their proposal and getting to know them, them getting to know you, getting more information from them that the proposal didn't reveal. It gives them an opportunity to ask us more questions. It's worth that extra step. And then in those final interviews, you really get uh, even more of a feel when they bring the team on. And I can talk a little bit more about some of the, like I said, some of the things that factor into making those decisions. But so that really helps us to narrow it down to usually two finalists. And then there might be some additional questions that we ask each vendor to, again, kind of give us that uh, maybe thing that's going to tip it over, you know, the tipping point for one or the other. And in some cases, depending on the high stakes nature, there may be then a task force working group, um, something of that nature who will do a third round just with the, uh, with the two finalist vendors, if that's indicated, um, depending on the decision-making process again, um, and what was decided from the outset. Um, but that's, that's more of the exception rather than the rule. And then we then we're off to the races in terms of getting a you know notifying the vendors, getting a proposal, that sort of thing. I'll also mention too that I don't necessarily always notify vendors who have been narrowed out, so to speak, until we see how the process evolves um, with the vendors that we think will be in the finalist category, because sometimes things fall apart. And you may want to take another look at one of the other vendors or at least talk to them about their costs or, or anything that may, you know, make them more of a viable candidate. So I wouldn't, I don't completely shut anybody out until I have a feeling of surety that we actually have decided to move on with other vendors. And then when they, when they request, I always have a conversation with them and explain to them the reasons. And um, sometimes you have to be pretty direct. There were, some maybe red flags, but other times it's just here are the circumstances and, you know, you were, you were on par with the others, but Hey, your costs were way too high or something like that. But again, like Alex said, it's about keeping those relationships and trying really hard not to offend anyone. These processes are hard and, and vendors put in a lot of work to get these proposals done. So you don't want them to feel like their efforts were a waste of their time. Yeah. Sharing bad news of vendors not being chosen is like a bandage. I think just, just do it. Be direct, be honest. I think it's the best way to receive that kind of news. Yeah. So I'm curious about the scoring process or the, the selection process. Like, is there a scoring process you normally go through? Let's say we've we've narrowed down the process. You know, sometimes outliers you know, are, are really easy to filter out because of X, Y, Z reasons. But let's say we've got a handful now, you know, three, four, five type of vendors who all kind of look the same-ish. The budget, the, the proposals are, you know, homogeneous to a certain extent. How would you recommend filtering those down to that one? You know, what levers, what criteria, what scoring do you use generally to, to help get to that one single yeah. vendor? Good question. So I think that first in a different phases, you know, I don't necessarily call them rounds, but phases. And, and I think you alluded to that too, but some to a certain extent it depends on what your need and the high stakes nature of it all. And I, honestly, I've learned through experience that if I if I present a complicated rubric to the staff and volunteers, the likelihood of them actually filling it out to any great extent is very low because while they're listening, it's really hard for them to go, oh, okay, rubric, here we are. This is the question that's being asked. And, you know, it, it, you have kind of a plan going in, but the more people you have on the call, the more kind of for all it can become sometimes. And so I try to present a very basic rubric 
which, you know, I, it can be kind of re- resembling a Likert scale type of questions. And then for obviously for them to provide comments as well. But I can tell you that the criteria that I would include in terms of getting feedback, whether that's via a rubric or um, or just basically through conversation. Um, budget, of course, is, is a is a big one, but that's usually discussed in the initial review of proposals among among the staff or other stakeholders. But then um, we really look at you know, professionalism in the proposal process, you know, were they responsive to emails initially, you know, well, if we tried to schedule something with them, were they available? Did they participate in the Q&A process and try to gather more information? Even something as simple as looking at their proposals at the outset. And, and if you see a lot of typos in the proposal, that could be a red flag. If their proposal wasn't thorough enough, that could be a red flag. This helps to filter things out kind of at the outset. Um, did they answer all the questions? Were, as I said, were they thorough enough? And did they follow the suggested formatting? If they kind of have their own standard template and they tried to fit the square pegs in the round holes of their own template, and it makes it difficult to be for, for it to be evaluated sort of in an apples to apples way, not that they would be eliminated based on that, but it also shows their attention to detail and to the preference of the client. And, and I tend to kind of sort of translate that to, or generalize that to other potential issues in the future. And, and I wanna say, you know, th- these criteria, as I've said, some of them are objective and easily quantifiable and others are very subjective. And I've seen that the project team's impressions go a long way in determining which vendor is selected. You know, we look at, uh, for example, I've seen feedback from the staff members where, let's say we meet with a project team with one of the finalist vendors, but the only one person does all the talking. And that person asks very little, asks very few questions, but does a lot of talking and talks about themselves and about their passion for such and such. And, and we'll walk away from those calls with a, you know, kind of a bad taste in our mouths. And I hear from the the project team from our side or from the client side that, yeah, that person did all the talking and didn't even let all their team members talk. We didn't hear from those team members. We didn't hear from the project manager. Um, so I think that definitely helps us to make the decision. Um, there could be just the feeling from the staff that they're going to get a more high touch um, treatment from a specific vendor. Maybe other vendors are more sort of matter of fact and cold and that particular uh, client team needs a little more touchy feely kind of an atmosphere. And I've seen that factor into decisions and where board members are involved and they really care about their staff, they will defer to the staff in terms of making the final decision because the staff is the one that will have to be working with them. But other things that we look at are the long-term stability of the vendor itself. Um, we do ask questions, and again, depending on the high stakes nature and investment, we ask if they have any planned ownership changes or mergers that are in the works, because those types of things can be disruptive. And we we you know, we go as far as looking at you know financials in certain cases, certainly looking at uh, references, and that that's a really important piece of data that you know should you should take the time to gather. And that does factor in, I'm sorry, you know, going back to the previous subject about making the final decision and what's part of the process, reference checking is definitely a very important key to that. And we also ask, you know, how long staff members have been with the group? 
with the vendor. You know, if, if all of a sudden we've got a team of people that have been there, you know, maybe four months, you know, five, six months, and there's more than a few of them, that could be a red flag because we really want experienced people on our team. Maybe, maybe because it's not a multi-million dollar project, we're getting, you know, more you know, new uh, staff members who need to get their feet wet, but that may not be what we want. So we want at least a good mix of experienced and um, and maybe uh, uh, newer people to their teams. But there has to be sort of that authority um, and depth of knowledge and experience that we can work with as opposed to more junior level people. So those are just some of the things that I think factor into this aside from sort of the the uh, responses to the proposal in the in the various you know heading areas you know those are important too but these are some of the the maybe uh, less initially tangible things that you definitely want to find out about. I definitely want to underline the relationship and the the culture fit because I mean at the end of the day you're going to be working with this vendor probably for a long period of time at least a few months maybe more and you know all things being equal or relatively equal in terms of the technology side of things. I think it's really important to make sure that the the nonprofit is comfortable and would look forward to working with that vendor because they will be working with them for a long period of time. So that's a, a really important criteria that may or may not have more emphasis, but at least it has to be a, a scoring criteria yeah. that can differentiate uh, between vendors. Agreed. And I like the fact that you, even after you've kind of decided, it's just like a soft decision of saying, okay, this particular vendor is not quite the right fit, but rather than announce it to them right off the start or right at that moment when that decision is made, you wait a bit further just to make sure that you are happy with that decision, that there are no other red flags that are happening with the existing or remaining vendors. And then at some point in the future, then you come back and say, okay, look, you guys have been chosen. I like that the kind of ability of, because if something goes wrong to your point, if there's more red flags, you can always pivot and then come back and then see if you can massage and, and enrich and, and improve the chances of that vendor that otherwise would have been filtered out. Uh, so it's easier to go backwards in that case than, uh, than saying, oops, we made a decision and we regret it. Come back and continue the process left off. I think that's a really, really good technique that I was impressed with when I heard it. Yeah. I, I kind of the tier one, tier two, right. And, uh, uh, and sometimes you find a diamond in the rough. I've seen situations where what I considered to be a um, underdog contender uh, ended up winning the business because uh, we we did go back or we kind of brought them in when we felt like we didn't have great a variety of great choices from the tier ones and the tier two vendor ended up getting the business. And I've seen that with job interviews as well. I often do like position sourcing for my clients and I'll see your resume and I'll, and I'll meet a person and I'll say, you know what, your resume doesn't even begin to reflect everything you've told me on this call. Uh, so I'm going to give you an opportunity to revise your resume and send it to me. And, and we, then I will evaluate it and advance it to the client for consideration. And I call those the diamonds in the rough. You know, they just needed a little bit of coaching. Um, and so I kind of see, I kind of see it here in, in the same way. It's like, you know, there's some some clients, some vendors that can completely be eliminated without any doubt in my mind. My instincts are usually pretty much on target. And then there's others where, you know, you give them a second chance and they they really shine. So, um, yeah, it's good to keep your options open for sure. You mentioned that um, the RFP process from the vendor side is, is very, it, it takes a considerable amount of effort and time to build it, to respond to questions, to do all this uh, presentation. 
And I'm curious to know, is there anything that you can suggest from the nonprofit side that can help the, the take off some burden or make life easier? Or and we, we mentioned a bit about transparency, which is great, but is there anything else that you could recommend the nonprofit do just to make sure that they consider the vendor side a little bit more, a little bit more? Yeah, I think it goes both ways. I think that truly a lot of what we talked about, that transparency, providing a question and answer period. And I, and I should mention, if I didn't, that I take all the questions that I receive from all the vendors who are in this uh, in the mix and I post them for everyone to see. So, Alex, if you submitted, you know, uh, 20 questions to me, everyone would see those plus whatever else and then all the responses. And truly, in certain cases, we can't always answer all the questions because the, the subject matter expert comes in with these amazingly you know, tactical questions. And all we can say is we need to learn about that. And thank you for making us aware um, of that. But nevertheless, you know, if, if the bidding vendors participate in that, that sh certainly should, you know, give them a lot more of a of a fighting chance to understand the client and the needs. So, so the, for the not-for-profit to have that Q&A facilitated, like I said, potentially holding an all-vendor call you know, I specified on this call that I held that I talked about, please limit your questions to questions that were not already uh, distributed, you know, and answered in the shared document that we have, you know, setting some criteria there. And I think having the appropriate resources so that you can keep a really good flow of communication and someone who can handle the logistics of scheduling all the meetings and doodle polls and all of that should be you know, again, we talked about having the resources to do something like this. This is a big undertaking. And so that way the vendor, again, has that flow of communication. They know what's going on. They understand the milestones. They understand when there have been delays, extensions of deadlines and things like that. Because the reality is that, you know, just like anything else in this world, you can make plans, but things happen and you have to change your deadlines or maybe a staff member left or they got ill and you have to regroup or you know, there's an annual meeting in the middle of things and you're like, oh, yeah, we, you know, we really just can't seem to get any of these volunteers on these calls. We need to extend this into, you know, once the annual meeting is over, hey, let's notify everybody that there's been a delay and we'll be contacting them for interviews at such and such a time. You know, you have to be flexible in this as a not-for-profit. But I think, uh, you know, I'll just kind of touch on the other side because there's always the flip side to everything, right, is that the vendors, if they take the initiative to ask questions, do their homework so that they can learn about that particular organization and their their specialty area, whatever that may be, and just spending time on their website, looking at the industry and that sort of thing, looking at 990s, whatever they need to do to understand that client and then make sure that that work is in their wheelhouse. I will be known to say, you know, in this case, it's not a throw spaghetti at the wall and see if it sticks proposition. You know, some companies put out RFPs, they churn them out and try to just be have their name in every single RFP that's out there. But is it really in their specialty area, for example, or or did they really thoroughly pay attention to that RFP so that their proposal is very well crafted and targeted to the needs of that client? Um, I, I met with a vendor the other day in, with a, it was an initial proposal walkthrough, and within 10 minutes, we knew that there was no way we were going to work with these people. I mean, it was that quick because they hadn't done their homework. They brought on a, a consultant that had not even reviewed the RFP and, and some other factors. And so, you know, we probably within 15 minutes, we ended the call. 
And that was it. So, you know, they they obviously sabotage themselves by not doing that research. And that may, may be an extreme example, but we've even gotten proposals where you can tell that it was put together overnight at the last minute on the on the uh, the night before the deadline, repurposing proposals that were for other clients and then other clients' names are in the proposal instead of your client. Um, you know, <laughs> if you awesome. say, yeah, oh, it's it's priceless. I should save them all for you know and de-identify them for for some future workshop. You know, find find the mistakes, but you know, spelling errors for, for other things like, you know, important things like, okay, this is a 12 month engagement, but they give you six month pricing or it's a full-time opportunity and they propose, you know, like halftime number of hours, things like that. So it's the association or society, whatever the nonprofit is, they can, they can do all the things that I've said, but then it really becomes up to the vendor to say, how much do I really want this? And what efforts am I willing to put in to win this business? And and what will I learn from it if I don't win the business? This has been awesome. Lots of great information here. I think it's, it's a good point to put a pin in it and then just reach out if people have more questions to you and, and follow up and maybe you know have, have you help them in that RFP process. So where can people find more about you online? How can they get in touch with you? Well, interesting. I don't have a website. Um, I suppose someday I might consider that, but I'm definitely on LinkedIn and I'm happy to provide my email address right now, which is just simply K-I-S-M-E-T dot association consulting at gmail.com. Um, and Alex, I thank you so much for this opportunity. You've given me a topic to talk about that I'm actually pretty passionate about, and I've enjoyed this very much. We'll put the email address and the um, the LinkedIn in the show notes below. Uh, Kismet, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Same, same here. Thank you so much. Good luck with your future podcast. Thank you. All right, that's it for today. I'm Alexander Lapa, and I hope you join me again in the next Agents of Nonprofit.